Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Stuart Copeland is best known as the drummer for The Police, the rock band, not the institution of public safekeeping. He is widely regarded as one of the maybe 10 best drummers of all time. Certainly for me growing up in the 1980s, he was a hero, an enigmatic, terrifying rock and roll god. So when he appeared on my itinerary as a guest for Wheels Off, I got a little scared, a little nervous, not going to lie. But guess what? You're never going to believe this. Or maybe you've already guessed. Super cool dude. Super nice guy. Couldn't have been kinder, funnier, more generous with his time and his wisdom. So erudite and well-spoken. I can't even believe that I just spent a half an hour having laughs and conversation with the great Stuart Copeland, you guys. This is uh, definitely a high point for me. Certainly as an interviewer, but as a rock and roll fan, not going to lie. I just, I got very lucky uh, to do this, to have this conversation today with him. This Wheels Off uh, series is truly the gift that keeps on giving for me. I I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed partaking in it. Um, You should know, because you won't be able to see the video as you are listening that during the whole second half of our conversation, he paced in rapid circles around his recording studio. And um, you would never guess that this guy is 70 years old. He's he's spry and young and quick-witted and sharp and handsome. And wow, I'm, uh, I'm all a tingle. Please enjoy listening to this episode of Wheels Off featuring the great Stuart Copeland. Welcome to Wheels Off, Stuart Copeland. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Uh, very good. It's good to be with you. Nice. For, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in? I am logging in from Los Angeles, California, where the sun is not shining today. Yeah. Are you covered in smoke from the Canadian fires like we are in New York? Maybe that's what it is. It's all overcast. But no, I don't think that's what we're seeing. This is just uh, California June gloom. Of course. We have summer all year except for June. Ironic. For some reason. Yeah, ironic. You know, but normally the sky is blue. The birds are singing. The rattlesnakes are biting. The the mountain lions are chasing cyclists. (laughs) Earthquakes are shattering lives. Forest (laughs) fires. You know, it's, it's great out here. Um, it looks like you're in a recording studio. Yes, this is the Sacred Grove. 
ah. um, where my fancy friends come to play. Love and it. I've got everything is all mic'd up. I got the largest collection of the, the cheapest music instruments that money can buy. Uh, and it's all line check set up. I'm the studio. I'm kind of a geek, a studio geek. And this is my train set. And Amazing. I've got it all. So I just hit record. The whole room is in record. The drums, the piano, the amps, the microphones, everything is on and in record. So my chuckle buddies come over, you know, you know, um, unfortunately, Taylor Hawkins and Neil Peart no more. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Snoop Dogg and Ben Harper and Stanley Clark and others, they come over here and we just jam. Nice. And I got cameras around the room, too, and I cut them up, these jams that cut the 15 minutes down to a manageable eight minutes and uh, put it up on YouTube. And you can see it there. Um, so and so at the Sacred Grove. Look for the Sacred Grove. Nice. And Ben Harper was a recent guest on Wheels Off. Great dude. Yeah. Uh, I Josh... got a slide player. Oh, incredible. Is Josh Freeze? Has he ever been in there? He, well, we're good buddies, and he hasn't made it. And now he's got like this big uh -huh. gig, so I probably I'm probably not going to be seeing much of Josh. He's a busy guy. Yeah, in he fact, is. We we all knew that he got the Foo Fighters gig when uh, he has to call up, um, you know, um, uh, Danny Elfman and say, "Oh, sorry, I can't make rehearsals," and he has to call up Devo and say, I'm "Sorry, guys, can't <laughs> make this tour," and so. I remember the predicament that Josh must have been in. He can't tell nobody yeah. why he's not doing, but every way to hold on just a minute there, pal. So we all had this kind of figured out in advance. Uh, and I remember when we did the big police reunion tour, I was in the same thing because at that time I was a professional film composer yeah. and hanging out. And, and we knew like six months out that we were going to be doing this. And I had to keep real quiet about it. And so my composer buddies are saying, so, you know, Stuart, what are you working on now? What movie are you working on now? And I go, oh, uh, well, um, not much. I'm uh, I'm working on my solo album. <laughs> and, in, and in film composing world, working on your solo album means you are out of work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and people, oh, gosh, dude, I should introduce you to my agent, man. Uh, you, you should be working. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to that end, is there a creative project you're working on right now? And if so, how does it light you up? Oh, nothing really. Just working uh, on my solo oh, album. No. <laughs> so you're in the food. Not working on all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah. And it is as pathetic as it sounds, actually, because I'm not employed <laughs> as a film composer anymore. I don't do that anymore. I, I write art for art's sake. And um, I know this is going to be kind of a conversation stopper uh, and a disappointment to many. But I spend my days now writing opera, nice. Which is sort of which is sort of like film composing. Only the pay is crap because it's art for art's sake. The business model for the opera companies is to lose money. But that's what makes it so fun because it's fully creative. There are no studios breathing down our neck, and the opera house has a they have a theater. They've got an orchestra in the pit. They've got the singers on stage. They've got all this infrastructure for me to come in and do music and drama, which is what film scoring was all about. But instead of working for the man, it's all in service of art. It comes up a lot in these conversations with creative people about the idea of art, um, 
when it's uh, on consignment, when it's when you've been given an assignment to do a piece of art, or when you're making art and you're trying to calculate what you think your audience wants. Well, those um, are two very, very different things, actually. Okay. Uh, you very cleverly identified two very specific streams of artistic consciousness. The first, which is employment for hire. For yeah. 20 years, I was a film composer, hired gun, flinty-eyed, pay me money, I'll give you music. You want happy? I'll give you happy. You want sad, happy, sad? <laughs> sad, happy, maybe? Uh, and that's not so much art as, as craft. And boy, you don't develop yourself as an artist so much that way, but you sure do learn some stuff. Because under the heavy yoke of cruel employment, you have to go places that you wouldn't go instinctively as an artist. And so I had to learn orchestra, and that was a byproduct. I had an involuntary education in orchestra, and man, do I appreciate that. That's better than all the hard cash money that I got paid was that experience of learning how to use orchestra. Now, the art side, now that I don't do that anymore, I'm the second part of your point, which is art for art's sake. What, is, what does the world want from me? Um, which is tempered by what do I want to say? And uh, in my um, later year, in my winter years, I can pretty much go with what I want to say rather than what my audience expects of me. They do expect me to be banging shit. And I'm doing that. I'm doing that with the police deranged for orchestra. I will be playing, if I haven't already, I'll be playing in your city with your orchestra banging stuff, which is what people expect of me. The opera part is what I want to do. And it's deeply engrossing. It's just the most fun a musician can have with his clothes on um, working with music and storytelling is really very intoxicating. And when you're making uh, art for art's sake, as you call it, and it's not the opera that's really feeding your soul, but it's stuff where you're trying to really figure out what people are going to want. What do you run into when it comes to, do you ever feel like you're calculating something, chasing what you think they would want does, has that ever happened to you? Do you feel like that has, has had an adverse oh, effect? Yeah, yeah the I mean, police started as exactly that. The world wanted punk. Okay, I can do that. I can make a punk band. We'll call ourselves uh, something about uh, the, the bathrooms. No, uh, uh, the police. Oh, that'll piss everybody off. Okay, I got me a punk rock band called The Police because it was a happening scene. And it was totally a uniform of convenience, a flag. Uh that was flying and flapping in the wind. So sure, we'll march under that flag because it was happening. Because the old scene, progressive rock, has was withering on the vine. No wind in those sails. And so the police started out as a complete calculation. And yet it wasn't inauthentic. Well, it was pretty inauthentic. <laughs> well, no, it was... It was pretty inauthentic at the start. For me, it wasn't because I like that stuff. I love the cramps and the the sex pistols yes. and the clash and the damned. And I, I love all that stuff. And for me, it was great fun. Uh, for old Stingo, you know, he is a sensitive soul with a deep heart and a big mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, fuck off, everybody. It wasn't quite you know, fulfilling artistically for him, but he stuck with it, you know, with my songs that we started out with, which were bass lines with yelling, uh, because it was a happening scene. And it was, we felt like we were moving forward, even with crap material. Then Andy Summers showed up with his fancy harmonic sophistication. And that's where Sting discovered, and we all discovered that guy can write songs. And so 
Andy was able to play the stuff that he would conceive of. And that's when the police really found our groove is when Sting started writing songs. But that was two. But that was two years in, by the way. Wow. And we starved together with crap material, flag of convenience, pretending to be a punk band for two years. Um, God knows what kept us together. But I think that makes a compelling argument for every once in a while, the flag of convenience, as you call it, or the calculation, there's value in it. Like it, it can get you somewhere where then the art can take over. There's room for what maybe is more expressive or connected to Absolutely. your soul. I would say to any young musician, do not be afraid of selling out because in you know or selling selling yeah. your art selling what you can do whether you're a keyboard player guitarist or songwriter whatever it is you, how you make music selling it is not a bad thing that's what troubadours have done since time immemorial you know mozart got paid to write that incredible art that he created uh so the upside is the downside is you're not following your dream but the upside is you're learning stuff yeah. and you're going places involuntarily that you will derive great benefit from. And so selling out is not necessarily a bad thing. This is so great. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to describe for the audience the moment when you knew you were going to be a musician. Was there an epiphany moment? Was there a light bulb? Do you remember it or was it even pre-consciousness for you? Well, the light bulb went on and off and on and off a few times. Um, as a kid, as soon as I was immersed in music, that's all that was happening in my brain. It's from seven years old or something. Then I started banging stuff. And that, you know, hitting drums just turned me from a little squirt, a little runt of the litter, late developer, into a 800-pound hairy-ass silverback swinging through the trees instantly with that volume and that bombast uh so it's always been kind of right at the center of my thinking but then i went to school and then i went to college and i thought i was going to be a journalist or something else but playing in bands and and so on because all that time while i was in college i, I was tour managing and roadieing for my brother miles's roster of bands and so i was seeing music from the side of the business from the roadie and i was a dj at uh, my college station in uc berkeley and um so I saw that from that, but I kept playing. And so going back and forth in front of the camera, behind the camera, before the camera, behind the camera. And I pretty much decided I was going to not do it for a living, but be in the music business. But the music kept drawing me back. It kept pulling me back. And I kept finding myself in the band uh, with Curved Air. I started out as their tour manager. And then I found myself in the band. And with the police, I was in the band, but I was also the tour manager at the same time. That's rough. I, I I tried that with my own band, and it's tough to get your bandmates to follow your directions when they're cranky in the morning. Well, it was easy when it was Sting and Henry, because they appreciated that they didn't want to worry about the truck. They didn't want to worry about what time we got to meet. They didn't want to worry about booking gigs, creating posters, designing single sleeves and all that. They were quite happy. Then Andy joined. That little summon a bitch had an opinion, <laughs> which was good news and bad news. Good news because now I got somebody to deal with and we would exchange. Now there's two sharks in, in, the, in the tank. And um, 
And so I really appreciate it. But now I had to run decisions. We had to like have conversations and I didn't, couldn't just decide, okay, we got the, the, the photographs, the contact sheet. Well, we'll use that shot, that shot, and that shot. Now I got to have a debate. But it was a good debate because Andy's standards were higher than mine. I was in a hurry. He would say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You know, that gig, we, you know, you played there before. Going back, you could probably get more money out of that guy. And uh, so that was an upgrade as far as the police management was concerned. God, and, and with your whole family in the business, I mean, it's, it's, you must have been plugged in like you absolutely i was the great beneficiary of my brother ma and ian my brother ian yeah. was an agent who who was who represented everybody um and between the two of them they actually brought the new wave from england over to america ian created the club circuit uh miles sent bands and with his record label irs records with the you know rem the go-go's uh bangles uh cramps you know the list is endless um they miles had his office and i operated myself out of his offices and i was the beneficiary of his rolodex yeah. and his connection so i was able to make things happen that was half of the bamboozle that i told sting when he came down to london and returned my call i said yeah i got it all going on i we got gigs we got we got the band really cool name the police and we're gonna kick ass and it's all happening uh which he 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 believed uh <laughs> and uh the rest is history you have always struck me as someone who doesn't um suffer from the sort of inner turmoil as much as maybe like the tortured artist cliche a lot of people i talk to but i've never spoken to someone that doesn't admit to having some um like internally generated obstacles stuff that they come up against whether it's roseanne cash talked about success guilt or imposter syndrome or just you know garden variety anxiety I wonder when you come up against those internally generated obstacles, what have you figured out as a way to, to get past that? Well, of course, I am a tortured soul. My heart bleeds with sorrow and the silent miseries of my life. But you know what? You wake up and you make the call. You've looked down your list of stuff to do today and you just start with item one and pick up the phone or whatever it is you got to do. And actually, I am racked by guilt, but it doesn't last. I think it's something to do with brain chemistry in the morning, pre-caffeine, pre post-caffeine, whatever. <laughs> but that sense of guilt, achievement, uh, obs obstruction, whatever, has to do with your brain chemistry, not to do with actual circumstances. I know this, and I'm sure Roseanne knows this as well that even when you're on top of the world, it seems like you're facing insurmountable obstacles. And I, I'll never, I can't do this. I've got nothing. Wait a minute, I just won another Grammy. Uh, and still, you're gonna have these. So they're not related to actual reality. They're related to the state of caffeination at that particular time of day. And if you don't like how you're feeling, check in an hour later. I like that. I, I wonder, because I don't know that I've ever, I mean, I guess, I've talked to some people that have ridden big waves, but I wonder, I'm, I'm 18 years your junior, uh, what those years in the 80s, the synchronicity, like the, the apex of the apex, when you were going through that, I mean, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. What's it, actually, it like to be at the top of that wave? It It is anomalous. Good question. Uh, because it's not 
yes, yes, there are the riotous parties. There is everything that you imagine of show business and the glitterati. Of course, yes, that's all happening. And yet, it's all kind of unsettling. There is a thing that you could call social vertigo, where, yeah, I'm way up high, but the ground sure is way down there now. And there's kind of an anxiety that goes with it all. Uh, which makes no sense. You're getting what you always dreamed of, you know, more love, appreciation and admiration than you ever thought would be possible. And yet there is such a thing as too much adoration. It actually can be unsettling. And this is not a complaint. This is not, you know, oh, oh you know, of course, my heart bleeds with sorrow. Of course, we yeah. discussed that. Uh, but it's a strange thing that along with all of that cool stuff is some weirdness. Yeah. And I guess it's it's sort of like a vertigo. The stakes are higher because a simple thing. You walk into a room as a normal civilian and you walk into a room. You walk into a room as, as Mick Jagger and you're like a shining light in the room. Everybody stops what they're doing and looks around to see what you got to say. And you better have something useful to say. And the upside is whatever dumb shit you do say is either hilariously funny, scathingly biting, or devastatingly, you know, you know, the, every, your, your words are amplified, and for good or bad. And it takes a lot of mojo to be the big guy. And um, it's that I think causes some anxiety. You know, it's like you're driving a giant avatar. And the avatar is what people know. They see the picture in the papers. They see it on, on YouTube. That's the character. That's the avatar. The, the skinny runt, actually, who is that guy, is got a, he took, woke up this morning, took a piss, and put on his pants, you know. And uh, so you're this little guy driving this big avatar. It's like you're driving a giant truck into the cocktail party. And you got to be work, careful where you drive that thing. You know, because if you're just walking in, driving a normal car, that's a lot easier in a weird kind of way. Boy, can you imagine trying to navigate that situation in today's world of uh, handheld video, everything documented? Yeah. That would be yeah, terrifying. You're not, you don't just light up the room, you light up the internet. Oh, I uh, My band recently got to appear in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and I had a scene where I acted alongside Chris Pratt, who's a super oh, nice cool. guy. But he, um, he described a situation where he has a hard time and i don't think this is me uh speaking out of school i think he's would say this to anybody um his situation is now he has a hard time figuring out like, he can't tell if if people really like him if he's really funny like everywhere he goes as a movie big movie star like everybody just as you're describing they laugh and laugh and laugh everything he does is the most incredible thing and it's uh, i think it's hard to figure out like who your real friends are what the real reaction is to you like i wonder i wonder if the masks helped in the last couple of years for people like that well yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely but i once ran into getty um uh in an airport and he had his mask on his face he had his orange hair all tied up and he had a wool cap absolutely his his assistant came over and say oh by the way uh, you know, uh, Getty's over there. Want to say hi? And and there he was, and completely recognized by Rush fans. You know, no no hiding under any amount of mask. Wow. And he just has to deal with that. I love that. Um, 
So I know you got some some kids out there in the world, and and you're probably pretty good at dispensing wisdom. You've certainly been doing it for the last oh, how, plenty of that. However many minutes. I wonder if you would be willing to try and distill some of this wisdom into um, a piece of advice you might give a 21-year-old version of yourself working in today's world. What advice do you think you'd give yourself? Oh, man. Well, myself, I would have given myself advice that I'm glad that I would not have taken. And that advice would have been, relax, dude, it's going to be fine. Don't beat yourself up. Just, you know, enjoy, smell the coffee as it goes by. You know, uh, if I had done that, I never would have gotten anywhere. Um, so relax to enjoy life, but let that anxiety continue to drive you to that 21-year-old guy. As far as specifically the modern world, oh my goodness gracious me, it is such a different world. It's good and bad. There's good news and bad news. The good news is that any darn fool can make a record. You don't need to go to the man. You don't need to go to the big record company and get their expensive studios to cut an album. You can do it at home on your laptop. That's the good news is that, that it's been democratized. You know, whoever, you know, like somebody like Moby can make music without playing an instrument, but he creates music. You know, anyone can do it. Homo sapiens are very good at music. And it really is something for all to enjoy. You know, around the campfire, that's the real thing. You know, specialization where I get to do it and you got to buy it and listen to it because you're the audience. I'm the musician. That's actually kind of unnatural. And so the modern world where anybody can do it at home, that's a good thing. Here's the problem. Everybody's doing it. So how do you bust out? How do you get out in front? How do you get more than three people to hear it? Okay, I will. I'm the wrong guy to ask. I should be asking that question to the youngsters. <laughs> how do you do it? How do you bust through? How does how does this YouTuber or this Instagrammer suddenly they got the gazillion following and there's 50 more who don't? And uh, that's a question that uh, people who sell art have been trying to figure out forever is they all get air, airplay one way or another, but some are hits, some are not. Go figure. You know, this is not a question I normally would have asked over the last couple of years having these conversations, but I feel like you probably are going to have an interesting take on the conversation that keeps coming up these last few weeks, especially um, the role of AI, the chat GPT, like everything that's happening. What do you think will keep humans, homo sapiens, the, the musical homo sapien you just described, what will keep us relevant in the face of computer generated, digitally created AI music specifically? Well, damn. Um, everyone's kind of reassured by the fact that right now it's kind of crap. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've partaken thereof myself. And unfortunately, uh, I feed into it a cool, you know, idea. And it comes back with not great stuff. But it's, maybe it's a beginning of something you can work with. Uh, so we're all reassured by the fact that it's imperfect and actually not that good. Okay. How long is that going to last? Maybe 20 minutes yeah. before that AI starts getting really good at stuff. And as consumers, we can be happy. Uh, for instance, uh, the drummer's relationship with the drum box, where the drum box, which is a form of AI, plays rhythm this basic human fundamental elemental 
aspect of humanity is our rhythm, which we do better than any of the other primates or any other species. We do rhythm is what we do, and rhythm is what music is, and it's the bonding force that actually causes us to procreate. It causes us to thrust our pudenda in public in a sexually explicit manner. Only music does that, not Shakespeare or any other form. Rhythm does that. And this fundamental animal thing can be done most effectively by a machine. Out on the disco floor, the thing that more than Charlie Watts, more than Clive Stubblefield, a machine gets people dancing and gets those pudenda thrusting. And so, in a way, drummers have been supplanted by machines. But no, they haven't. I'm still banging shit. And there's a different kind of vibe you get from it. And it may be that AI will produce the next huge blockbuster film, one way or another, probably with the wrong number of fingers on several of the characters. <laughs> but uh, there will still be room for humble humanity. Is it choices? I, don't know. I hope. We're just making this up. You know, I know. Is, is it intuition that sets us apart, you apart, than the from the drum box? Is it okay, like well, those... this, okay? This so goes back to the fundamental dialectic of <clears throat> Star Trek. You know, Captain Kirk versus Spock. You know, logic versus instinct. Um, deep imponderables revealed to us in Star Trek. Yeah. Well, that's funny. You drummers have been dealing with the AI. Uh, much longer than everybody else. And yeah, well, my first my first thing was to go and get me one. Yeah. In fact, I got a drum box long before they invaded drum world because I was, you know, playing guitar at home, hamming it up on, you know, and, and I would try and set up a rhythm first with a hitting a pillow and stuff. But yeah, and then I found this drum box, which was designed uh, to accompany lounge pianist. <laughs> who's playing, you know, piano in, in the lounge of a hotel and he has a little drum box. And it had four or five different settings on it. Rock one, rock two, you know, and you can fiddle with a tempo and do a few things. But I could lay down on my Revox A77, one track of that. Then I could jam on that with the guitar. And it was several years later that I think Phil Collins was the first guy to use a drum box that you can actually hear on the record. You can hear, hey, that's not Phil, and he's a famous drummer. That's oh, a machine, okay. proudly. And very soon thereafter, the electronic drum box rhythms, now being able to be programmed with great sophistication on computers, that's when the invasion began. <laughs> and last time I checked, Drummers are still working. Oh, yeah. Do you do you where do you stand on the idea of um, in the recording studio, a tech lining the drums up to the grid uh, perfectly? Like, Is this something that that you're all for or do you think it dehumanizes it? Lining up to the grid. No, I don't mind that. Quantizing. Yeah, is what you mean. Yeah. Uh, yes. To make it. I don't mind that. Uh, if you have to work with a click. If you're not working with a click, if it's just the band, they play the song down, that's one thing. But, and that's a really great way to record. But also another great way to record is to lay down a mechanized, mechanized rhythm, which is solid. It's not a click, 
it's a full, fully developed rhythm with all the nuances of a rhythm that you can program in there. And that's inspiring. So you get that going and you can play yourself some goddamn great guitar and you can play the bass and overdub all the stuff at leisure. Whereas in olden times, you had to record the backing track, i.e. the drums first. And that's what you got to work with. Yeah. But nowadays you can, the drummer doesn't have to do all the work first. He can come back later and he can overdub later. Okay, here's the deal. Now, when it was played uh, viscerally, organically by a band, it, the groove is fine. But when we're all now playing to the machine and the drummer adds himself to the machine, he's kind of got to be on the grid. Yeah. It just works better if you nudge it this way and you nudge it that way. Maybe you're depriving some humanity. But remember that old disco thing. Yeah. We don't mind hearing mechanized rhythm. It's fine. All the little roughs and drags and nuances and changes of volume and expression are still there, but they're all shuffled to be on the grid because Homo sapiens loves that on the dance floor. Uh, man, Stuart, I feel like I could um, pick your brain all day long. You're so generous with this, uh, with these, these deep thoughts of yours, but I don't want to wear out my welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for this. I really appreciate it. You're the best. This is so ah, cool. Shucks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Cyrus. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast.